Welcome to Make It or Break It 6, a spinoff where we take a look at game developer Attila's game ideas, and we decide whether they're good enough to make or whether they should break and never be spoken of again. I'm Matt, and this is... Attila, Gabriel Branitsky. All right, Attila, where are we now? On the Ds, on the Es? Uh, so this is an odd part in the middle of the list of ideas where I prefaced all of them with the word game idea colon oh. and then the name so it's kind of a mixed bag right. uh so i happen to as among the g's then uh this one is an idea called gravity giver and the idea is um rather than having the like the gravity gun from valve's half-life series mm-hmm. the idea with this one is that you can aim and infuse different objects with gravity that points in different directions. I love it. So you can aim the, like, I don't know, this could be either a 2D game or a 3D game, and you can aim at an object and infuse it with, like, an upwards gravity to make it float, like, enemies to float out of cover, uh, or you can... uh, get platforms into the position that they need to be. Uh, You can even have, like, things stick up against the wall or just combine things. I feel like it's as much of a puzzle sort of experience as it is a... uh, Like, you can imagine this could be used either for combat or for puzzle solving, so... Yeah, I was thinking uh, when you first... First instinct was a a single room that you solve, Mm -hmm. like Portal... And you're using the different gravity on different objects to make them react in different ways. And uh, you could even, it could be like a set mm-hmm. where there's no, there's no timing behind it. Or you could have it where you need to time them so that you, you know, you do them in a certain order and you time it at the right time. I, I would prefer it more of like a portal experience, I think. Mm-hmm. But it is, it could be a really useful item to use, you know, a la Half-Life, but. Yeah, I, I like. I would want to see all the shapes kind of moving and running around and attaching gravity, and uh, that could be yeah, that could be really fun. It would work really well in like a sandbox open world game as well to be able to attach gravity to different objects and just go go crazy, go wild with it. Yeah, I feel like it would be interesting. Like, there's all there's always a sort of decision as to whether or not you want to use a sort of out of the box physics kit, uh, and you end up with something that's kind of like. Angry Birds or Bad Piggies or just any of those games that use the default box 2D physics collisions or whether you want to do something that is a bit more refined uh, basically to eliminate randomness because one of the things that like I, I didn't get into Angry Birds but I got into Bad Piggies which was the uh, the sort of lesser known game of all about the pigs Hipster. stealing the eggs okay um, and you just you had to build these little contraptions that you then plonk the pigs into, and they had wheels and physics joints and all kinds of little things that even if you built the exact same contraption and made the exact same inputs, running the same vehicle multiple times would give you different results because there was just these like tiny little bits of randomness in the physics engine. Kind of reminds me of uh, worms. Worms, yeah. uh, where you would watch the replay and you go, wait, mm-hmm. wait a second, that's not actually what happened. They're just yeah. rerunning the, they're rerunning exactly. it, and it's happening differently through the replay. Yeah, and that's where it would be more useful to infuse objects with, like, not actual Newtonian physics, but some sort of 
reasonable facsimile, I guess. Something that feels like you're manipulating gravity, but doesn't actually move at, you know, 9.8 meters per second squared. Mm, I see. So you're almost like setting it onto a track. And yeah. It, you know, the game has it figured out that if you if you tell Block to move with reverse gravity, it's going to go along this track. It's you're not. Yeah, it's not so precise, not so mathematical. It's it's lowering the uh, the margin of error. It's exactly. It's like, it's like using. It's like Mario and Super Mario 3D World having eight directional movements rather than 360 degrees or close. Yeah, close it's uh, it's one of those things where like overall, when you go into these experiences you probably have a pretty good idea of what it is you want to do. And if you fail the challenge because you hit a block with 359 degrees gravity instead of 360 Uh, or just straight up zero and you get, yeah. So a a little bit of manual physics calculation would go a long way towards making that more enjoyable. So yeah, it's this obviously idea is just like, a concept, but... but you uh, wouldn't want it to be too simple. Otherwise, it just becomes make the blocks go up, down, left, mm-hmm. and right. Whereas it's yeah. not, there's not really much there. Making Being able to make them heavier or lighter than each other, like if you could attach a color to a green is mm-hmm. the lightest and you know red's the heaviest or something, then they could stack on top of each other and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a concept, but I could see... I would be intrigued enough to try that. It would be nice as a, a little puzzle game. Yeah, so I think uh, that one gets a make it. Yes. All right, so let's crack on. I've got another one here called uh, Baxi Guns. Baxi? So, yes, B-A-X-Y from the controller inputs on a standard like Xbox or Nintendo setup. Oh, that's a st- I've never heard that term in my life. Well, just because it's A-B-X-Y, but... The oh. only sort of orientation or like the ordering that you can put those letters in that they make something pronounceable is Baxi. Right. Unless you get really ac- creative. Axib. Yixba. It all depends. That's what I said. You can absolutely get creative with it. I found Baxi to be reasonably pronounceable. Um, so, as compared to the original idea, which I have written here, is called Reloadinate. Oh, God. Reloadinate? I'll just let that one sink in. Reloadinate. 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 Or is that because you have the R and the L in there? Reloadinate? No, that's not even anything to do with the uh, the buttons. It's You're just relo- it's just called that. Because the premise of this game is that you have weaponry which only fires if you uh, input a correct button sequence. Quick so time, quick time shooter? Uh, not entirely quick time. I guess kind of a little quick timey. But the idea that this is a two-player game, um, like you fire your gun at your opponent and then you get like a button sequence on the side of the screen and you have to press the buttons in the correct order to reload your weapon to be able to fire it again. Mm-hmm. I like so, that idea. I like quick time events versus an opponent. I think sounds really fun. I mean, one of the one of the most interesting games I ever played was I think it was for the NES or the Super NES, and it was a Kirby game, mm-hmm. but you could go into this side mode that was one-on-one versus against, uh, you know, couch couch versus, and it was just a quick time. Uh, it was like yeah, a quick draw, quick draw. Like a, a slash thing. So yeah. something like that, but making that go further, it's just such a simple concept that anybody could play. Right. And this isn't just a matter of who presses the button 
the single button fastest but insofar right. as it is like you get a sequence of buttons and it it's almost got a bit of a guitar hero vibe to it in terms of being able to hit like it might be rhythmic it might be um it might be akin to the sort of active reload as of the, in the gears of war franchise i know mm-hmm. i came up with this idea before i played gears of war but i i do love the the active reload in that game which if anyone isn't familiar when you empty your clip in gears of war uh, a small bar appears over your reload window and a line travels across the bar. There's a small white window within the bar where if you press the reload button exactly in that time, you'll reload faster. Mm. Um, your weapon will have more ammunition in it. And I think you even get a damage boost. So nailing that active reload is crucial. And it's and a- if you fail, is there a punishment? Absolutely, your gun jams, and your character takes a couple seconds to like hammer on the thing, and then, uh, yeah. So, just letting the reload animation play, you get the sort of median reload time. It's longer than your average reload animation. Um, nailing the active reload is super quick and feels great, and then failing the active reload is a significant punishment. So, yeah, great reward on something that exactly you do especially- all the time. Yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's just something like reloading becomes this boring, natural thing. So to spice that up is so smart. Absolutely. So, like, Baxi Guns, what do you think? Baxi Guns. I mean, this is a this is a bare bones idea, too. Super bare bones. They are, they're yeah. all going to be like that this week. So it's a, a, a sort of a duel, maybe, or mm-hmm. it could be like a fully fleshed out game where, you know, where that's just a, a part of it. But I think... I feel like you try to imagine this as a sort of like... I can't say a flash game because you can't have two people sitting together using like mouse and keyboard controls, but two people plugged into the same like local versus same screen kind of deal. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it'd be nice is if they had like a virtual arcade mm-hmm. where you could like you and I could hop onto like an Xbox live arcade or something and and go from little mini game to mini game. And yeah, and just try a whole uh, bunch out without having to hop in and out of these games, being in the same space where you could play Baxi and uh, Gravity Gun, <laughs> and just uh, and Kirby Kirby Quick Draw without I, without having to you know go in and out. almost like if you're playing Mario Party online, but you could just choose the games rather than have to deal with all the BS of the of the board. I want that game. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's kind of like what they're doing a bit with PSVR, where you just hop in and you play these different games together, and, and it's pretty seamless as you go. But about Baxi, I, yeah, I love dual games, and I love games mm-hmm. that are about, that just break it down to the timing. Um, you know, I, I'm, I like quick time events, as long as they don't distract from actually what's going on the screen. Sometimes the, mm-hmm. that's a bit of a problem. The God of War ones are nice because in that, that era of uh, SD, the buttons were, had to be so big, like mm-hmm. <laughs> so massive on the screen. Um, yeah, I, I would I would play that. It kind of is like Guitar Hero, yeah, with the the dueling aspect. But Guitar Hero has the song to keep it interesting, and the rise and the fall, the tension, the release, the different parts. There's a lot of variety, and the song is there. But if you were if it was a shooter where that mm-hmm. was an element, it could that could latch on pretty nicely. But that yeah. seems like it would be so powerful. You want that to be the entire governing force between being able to shoot. You're not going to be able to shoot unless you do the 
the backseat. Yeah, I feel like it's uh, it, backseat it, driver. I'm envisioning this as a like almost top-down shooter kind of thing. Yeah. Um, very simplified, and you have one shot, and you need to perform the button sequence before you're allowed to shoot again. So like super quick, super simple game jam fodder kind of thing. Yeah, because you wouldn't want if you you could rush somebody, and if you had the confidence in your backseat ability, you could mm-hmm. take somebody down pretty quick. It's it it kind of be. That would be really cool because then when someone's charging towards you, you're like trying to input these things, mm-hmm. something that is easy if you take your time, but to try to fight against the uh, the impending doom adds mm-hmm. a lot of tension and is going to force you to make a mistake, which is like kind of the basis of, say, Dark Souls and Bloodborne. They're games that if you just take your time and relax mm-hmm. and dodge, you're okay, but it's that's not the point. The point is that you're freaking out and you're going to make yeah. a mistake. So I like that idea. Yeah, right. that, could, that could be a fun... Risk reward building off the Gears of War. Although you made it before Gears of War. Well, I made it before I played Gears of War. Yes. I, I imagine that Gears of War was probably a thing by the time I wrote this down. But in your in your universe, pre Gears of War, uh, yeah, I'd say it's a good enough idea. Another make it. Yes. Cool. I guess it's easier when you start off with just like a very broad idea. It's it's such a raw concept that it's hard to reject these outright. Yeah. Um, so I've got another one here called Drop Pod Wars. Uh, so primary goal is to construct a surface-to-air cannon. This will take out drop pods before they can land. So uh, most units have some ability to fire skyward to shoot down drop pods. Pods can be used to crush enemy units. Uh, campaign progression, you begin a match where you have a surface-to-air missile, which I'll just refer to as a SAM site from now on, already active. Matches progress to where both sides have them established, and then in the final matches of the campaign, your opponent already has one or more set up, and you have to try to take them by land. So, where this is coming from is uh, in combination of different uh, inspirations, I guess. Uh, Halo ODST, for one, I definitely liked uh, the sort of concept of the ODST, even though, you know, spoiler, I guess, when you play Halo ODST, you don't do a whole lot of orbital dropping. You do it once at the beginning, mm. and it doesn't go so well. <laughs> um, spoiler for, I guess, the first five minutes of game. Anyway, um, in the Command & Conquer game, uh, there were certain units that you could deploy via drop pods as well. So you had this activated ability where no matter where you were on the battlefield, if you'd constructed a certain tech structure, uh, you could be laying siege to your opponent on the opposite end of the map from your home base, and you could deploy this power that would just drop down a grouping of elite infantry. And because they're in these drop pods, they don't have... Uh, they're not vulnerable to anti-air fire because there are plenty of powers in the game that deploy units via aircraft, but the aircraft can be shot down, then you lose the units. So the drop pods were this unique sort of thing whereby the units that are deployed were immune to fire. But I was thinking just because they're being deployed from these rapidly falling things doesn't mean that they wouldn't it wouldn't be possible to shoot them down at all. And I thought it made for this sort of interesting land grab if the entire game was kind of based around this idea of 
you secure territory by setting up these anti-air weaponry platforms because then your opponent can't deploy troops from the sky. Because if you made that the central premise of the game, if you made the the whole idea of the game is dropping units in from the sky, uh, and then, you know, the bit of the the unlikely but fun moments where you actually land a drop pod on top of an enemy unit so it sort of serves a double purpose like you crush something of theirs with something of yours Uh, okay okay um so so, you're sort of fighting for territory in a way where yeah you can you can secure you can have the sams and then you're you're cutting off their avenue of approach yeah and then if it does get through there's that lucky i like that idea where there's a small percentage that it can just totally destroy as it lands. So it's yeah. kind of like a competitive tower defense yeah, over so multiple it's a, planes. Yeah, it's sort of it's quasi tower defense RTS. Like it's it's real time strategy insofar as you're deploying units and managing the movement of those units on the ground because um you know you're you're obviously at a strict disadvantage if your opponent has control of the airspace. Because then your units can only deploy from the, can only move in from the ground, but they can be just dropping these pods all over your guys. Um, but it's it's doesn't preclude the possibility of destroying an opponent's SAM site and gaining ground. Uh, and so that's why it becomes an interesting sort of back and forth, not quite like trench warfare-esque, but this idea that you're kind of building your way forward and your claim to territory is dropping this SAM site, which makes it not impossible, but difficult for your opponent to land any units. So it's, in a way, it's almost sort of hearkening to the like Normandy like landing craft, the idea of like storming a beach where you your opponent has an entrenched position and you're just like throwing as many guys as you can at it, trying to break it. So... Yeah, there's a lot of like thought and different ideas that went into the inspiration behind this one. Yes. There are so many moving parts I'm having trouble. <laughs> I guess ma- it all comes down it. to uh it all comes down to the fundamental like real-time strategy control of the units that you're actually dropping onto the ground in these pods. Yeah. And then a bit of base management, which I didn't even bother to list in here, but, you know, insert your favorite kind of... <laughs> that That's fair, right? This part of the game is your favorite kind of game. Yeah. Uh, so it's... All right, well, I mean, real-time strategy is a good jumping point. Tower defense is a good starting point. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing, what would make me look up a, a, an RTS or tower defense mm-hmm. at this point would be if it either is simple, like say something like 8-bit armies or 8-bit hordes, mm-hmm. which goes back to that simpler side, I would, I'd be more likely to go to there because I don't know if I want to learn something super deep and complex, mm-hmm. but I, I miss that type of game. Or if a more complex one had a hook that was worth learning the complexities, or mm-hmm. if it had some the, a bit more of um, a real-timey aspect incorporated oh, sorry not not real time it's real time strategy but something that is a bit more moment to moment where like real time strategy mm-hmm. not just like clicking and watching but if it had a bit of micromanaging within it so you were organizing all these troops but you could get a bit of an advantage if you went super micro mm-hmm. with maybe the drop pods or if that's just more of a decision 
So if you could combine like a bit of shooting out of it too, mm-hmm. where you're well, the the way I envision it, like moment to moment gameplay, is similar to traditional command and conquer games, insofar as you're leading a group of troops once they're actually on the ground. Yeah, and then rather than deploying your troops out of barracks or vehicle warehouses or whatever, uh, I feel like keep this idea simple, keep it focused on like troop movement, like I don't know some justification about. Uh, <laughs> Oh man. You know what? Uh scratch but that because when when lore. when there's lore justifications for things that are just gameplay focused, it's really annoying. Um when uh I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I used to love it in earlier versions of Command and Conquer, uh vehicles could just like crush infantry because, you know, a tank can run over a dude. That makes sense intuitively. It made vehicles very powerful. It made infantry very weak because you could just drive over them. So in Command and Conquer 4, the bad one, <laughs> the worst one, um, they just put in this lore justification of, oh, modern infantry are wearing such heavy armor that if a tank tried to drive over them, it would deal as much damage to the tank as the infantry. No. I don't I don't think so. I could I could see them having some sort of shelled armor that protects them from being run over, but not that it would deal damage to the tank. That it was sick. the most ridiculous lore justification for why they just wanted to take that mechanic out of the game because it was making vehicles overpowered versus infantry. So, whatever, that was their decision. I feel like you know, if you just don't give players the option to do that anymore, it's almost better to not try to tell them why you're doing it. And so, like, just leave it to the fact that, hey, the game just plays better if vehicles can't crush infantry. Okay. But I feel... Here's a better lore example. All all the soldiers have uh, a grenade that they can easily attach to any tank, and if it rolls over them, they attach it, and then it blows up. It's like kamikaze death or something. Yeah, well, again, you can spend all day trying to justify yeah. it via lore reasons, or you can just say, hey, this doesn't happen that way because gameplay. Sure, um, I don't need a lore to explain why when Mario burns his buddy, he flies out of lava, you know, or why it only hurts them a little bit rather yeah, than... Mario has lava. special fireproof pants that enable, like, a rubberized vulcanization against the server. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so, this yeah. Can, I don't know, so this is... This okay. We got real time strategy, and but over multiple planes, and I think what could make this one really interesting is sort of the chaos of everything going around it, and that it it feels a bit a lot more vertical mm-hmm. than any real time strategy where it's just normally I fought feel on like... the ground side. So it's nice to have that sort of separate uh, avenue, different planes of of combat. So picture this, if you will. One of the things that I've always found difficult about real-time strategy gameplay is trying to juggle back and forth between the base that you're commanding and the actual like army that you're supposed to be leading. Mm-hmm. Typically, I do a whole bunch of base management, grab a bunch of dudes, and then lead them into combat, neglecting base management. Um, but imagine instead that your base is essentially self-sustaining, but any controls or optimizations or micromanagement that you would want to do with your quote-unquote base of operations is readily available in the UI so that you never actually have to jump back to your base. Your base is just doing its own thing and you have to protect it as best you can. But the especially the main idea with these drop pods is that you never have to 
jump back to your base, grab new units that have been made, and then bring them to the front lines, your front line is where you're deploying the troops. Because if you're just deploying things by drop pod, you've Mm -hmm. got an army, and then you drop in new guys, and they add to the army, and you just keep on going. So it keeps the momentum going forward instead yeah. of having to like flip the screen back and forth yeah i like that i mean that's it's, it's more like an aggressive tower defense because the, yeah. the wonderful thing about tower defense is that you put things down and then they they have you can't optimize them they're going to do what they do a pea shooter and plants versus zombies is just going to keep shooting right this is not exactly this is not at all how i designed orbit oh okay <laughs> all right well orbit is all about the manual control that you have over your towers all right, well, let's. So, about plants, what I like about Plants vs. Zombies is that it's. You put those things down. So, I do like that where you are keeping that momentum forward. So, think of an aggressive Plants vs. Zombies where you're using that to attack and push forward and plopping yeah. those pieces down. Um, that could be really fun. There, that that description of it sold me on it. Aggressive tower yeah, defense. So it's- taking the, taking the like, boring micromanagement part that takes your perspective away from the front lines Mm -hmm. and keeps it pushing forward so it's just this constant turf war yeah exactly you're just uh, you're trying to grab land by setting up these sam sites and then any um yeah any any base management you have to do is sort of kept readily available to the players that you don't have to switch your camera back and forth you don't have to worry about queuing up new units on your build structures while you're also trying to lead an army because that's just there and available to you Mm -hmm. so yeah i feel like there's a lot about this idea that would be interesting and um i know that this is also inspired by uh there was a an ill-fated game called sector eight uh, which was a first-person shooter. Was such a generic um, name. Yeah, but the one thing about it that was really cool, and I never even played it. I just saw review footage of it. But the uh, this is when everyone was trying to vie a game, uh, like vying for the spotlight between like Halo and Call of Duty, and everyone wanted to be the next big multiplayer uh, deathmatch shooter. And the way, like, Sector 8 had one particularly interesting, unique idea. And that's when, if you died, when you respawned, you jump out of a ship and you are uh, in this mech suit, uh, not like Titanfall, but in a, like, Iron Man-esque suit that you are, like, falling towards the ground. And it basically sought to get rid of spawn camping, because in a traditional game at that, like, everyone else just had it so that the com- the computer decided where you respawned. Mm-hmm. And if you spawned in a position where someone was already aiming at you and you immediately get killed, you know, blame the algorithm. But Sector 8 gave that control to the player because from this dropship up in the sky, when you jumped and you're sort of like free-falling towards the, s- the ground, you have complete control over where you land in the battlefield and you can aim to land on top of your opponents and take them out. So... It's a shame that I guess the rest of the game didn't hold up to that the brilliance of that respawn mechanic mm-hmm. or whether there was just other flaws with the game or the story wasn't very good. There could have been any number of reasons why I they think probably, the game they, they had did this conversation well. of uh of sounds like a good idea, make it. <laughs> yeah. And there's the struggle of the rest of the game. 
So I just I thought that that idea, and I, it's something that I am waiting for another developer to actually do. It seems like such a good idea to me of like giving the player this active control over where they respawn so that you can choose to be cautious, like you can spawn away from enemy lines or you can spawn, um, you know, you might risk like risking the chance of being spawn killed, but having that be a conscious choice on the player's part. But maybe you're just spawning in just in time to save your buddies that seems like it would be a really cool idea to me. And you don't have to do it by jumping out of an airship. You're just giving the player an active like sure. a view as to where they could respawn and yeah. let them I mean, run with it. It's like the Gears of War active reload. You're taking mm-hmm. something that is it's very repetitive and mm-hmm. could be boring and could be tedious. Yeah. I mean, one of the worst parts about Bloodborne is uh, running back from the same spawn point over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Whereas if you can if you can take that repetitive action, add an element of risk and reward, and then you give freedom mm-hmm. to the player. So that there's a good idea for anyone. Is like find something you have to do in games a lot, mm-hmm. tweak it, make it risk reward, add a meaningful decision to the player. Absolutely, and some strategy behind it. So that is um, Drop Pod Wars. I guess uh, we didn't really give it a rating yet, but what do you think? Yeah, I like that it. A make aggressive, it or break it. Aggressive, competitive, plants versus zombies pushing forward. Another twist on the real time strategy. Yep. My God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh man, someone's gonna isolate that sound clip. Um, that gets a make it for me as well. I, I I started with a very bare bones idea, like you know, the, my design idea was less than like five sentences, but overall, I kind of talked myself into thinking like. Oh, yeah, I, I see what I was thinking. I honestly thought when we sat down to record today that these were all going to be break-its, but maybe I'm a better designer than I give myself credit for. Or maybe we're just too generous. Well, that's the thing. is it's, I think it's easy to improve an, it's easy to approve, uh, an idea. Mm-hmm. The monumental task is creating a game around it that supports Absolutely. that idea and works as a, as a fluid piece, so... Yeah, that's just the hard because part. I anyone can come up with the good ideas. It's actually making them and developing them and seeing them through to the light of day and playtesting and making sure they're not broken and all that Whoa. kind of stuff. Whoa, that's the hard exhausting part. Exhausting me just hearing about. <laughs> all right, uh, do we want to do one more or just call it there? Well, let's do one more, but this time let's focus on fleshing it out because that's okay. the real strength. So this idea is called Bombbot. And it's a puzzle-based game where you have a limited number of lives. And just picture like a little bomb-omb kind of guy. And you have control over where you want him to walk around. And then you hit a button and detonate your guy. And you have to clear all the obstacles from a room without using up your pool of lives. So it's kind of like Lemming, uh, Lemmings. You have the ability to assign a instant fuse so that, like, you hit the button, they explode, or you can create a delayed fuse so that they, like, keep walking a little bit and you start controlling a new one while the oh, other one is sort oh, of autonomously okay. moving. So you're timing a bunch of these different bombs. It's kind of like the gravity gun idea I was thinking where you're... How many bombs do you think you'd be controlling? Like two, ten? It depends. It depends per level. Like uh, I'd say you're you're only ever controlling one, but the mm-hmm. idea is that 
after you give up control of it, it can either detonate right away or you can give it a fuse and it'll keep walking autonomously and you have the opportunity to try and follow it up with another one in case you need to like have two explode at the same time or have one already. Okay, you like this idea. Yeah, I like that. Now, here's where I would think of a... Okay, where would the problem be? So, can you walk them and park them? And you need to have limited amount of bombs, obviously. That's to, Yeah, you have a limited pool of lives to clear each level. I'm thinking, like, top-down, tile-based, super yeah, bomber man. top-down, tile-based, or even, um, like, side-scrolling platformer-based. Sure. Because I, I think I got this idea from the occasional puzzle that you see in the new Super Mario Brothers series, where there's just a pot... Uh, there's a pipe dropping bomb bombs onto the mm. ground and you have to like jump on them pick them up and then try to throw them at a pile of breakable bricks mm-hmm. uh i guess it's also a little inspired by the uh donkey kong mario versus dk series with the march of the minis because you have like in that game though you can control uh you have indirect control over several guys at once this would be affording you direct control over one of these little bomb bots at a time and then the only lack of control you have is the idea of this delayed fuse of like how much time you want them to sort of walk autonomously forward after you relinquish control yeah that could be fun and you could have chain reactions you could have uh different tiles and objects that react differently to the explosions Mm-hmm. You know, you could you could blow open something, and water could come down, and it could push a bomb to another point in the level. Uh, yep. I mean, you're basically your bombs are like keys, or mm-hmm. they're erasers, and they're modifying the level, but they're sort of a one-time use. Yeah. Or what if a bomb blew up, and then it became a ghost bomb, and then you could blow up ghost doors or something? Uh, yeah, that sounds pretty fun. I like I like the idea of a puzzle room that you have that you could look at entirely mm-hmm. and and see the whole thing and then sort of work from there with little bomb buddies or it, you know it's, uh, it feels very much like a sort of see what sticks kind of approach as a player like you you walk into this room and like or you you start up a new level and you sort of look at it and you just see a whole bunch of breakable terrain you're like uh i don't know what i should be doing so you just start like trial and error almost kind of like throwing a couple bombs at it and then once like one particular bomb you try like destroys some key obstacle and then you're like oh wait you have that little aha moment where like you destroy some key obstacle and then you realize oh if i destroy this block then i can get one guy through to the middle of all these other ones blow all of these up and that helps me clear the level. And I feel like you sort of work off these little aha moments where mm. at first it's just trial and error. And I think it's honestly not a bad thing when a game is easy enough that you can get into it by just using trial and error. Yeah. Because if uh, if the game isn't so punishing, if it gives you this opportunity to just like kind of stumble into the solution at least the first couple levels then eventually the player is going to start to kind of figure out why they're succeeding that's the only issue is that you don't want people to be able to succeed despite having a little like you want the people to be able to actually come to grips with the mechanics at some point um you don't want the sort of uh, Street Fighter scenario where somebody who's just mashing random buttons can beat somebody who's actually trying to play the game. Yeah, baby beats Street Fighter Five. 
That's a great video. Just a, a oh. to- actual toddler mashing, mashing buttons. Yeah. Well, you know, when I think of a good uh, puzzle design, I've seen some, even though I was bashing God of War, God of mm-hmm. War often will show you a puzzle mm-hmm. and you think you figured it out just by understanding, oh, I've, I obviously need to do this to go over there. And they mm-hmm. want you to just learn that. You no, know, like that's just the language of this puzzle. Now mm-hmm. you need to take that language and 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 do it very fast or very accurately. So, you know, you want to set up a room where the mechanics are obvious, mm-hmm. but then it's, uh, accurately and like successfully executing the mechanics is the next step. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely don't want to leave trial and error. I mean, there's ways you can... You go into a room in Zelda, and they always do a pretty good job of wherever you sweep the camera across, or mm-hmm. you have one point of interest, you know, and then, like, if if you go into a room and there was one piece of water that was flowing with, like, an obviously yeah. breakable door, that gives a player somewhere to start, and then make that not the solution that, oh, yeah, you put a bomb on something that blows it up, but no, that's just the beginning of it. Now now that you've made that water, maybe it presents a new problem and you're looking around for like solutions around that. Puzzle design is a like super tricky field on, onto itself. Like The idea of creating a puzzle that isn't going to stump somebody because there's just way too many things you could do all at once, way too many possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, having too many possibilities, but only a single solution is going to make it incredibly difficult. Uh, but you definitely want to create a situation where people can start to get a feel for it. And even like the, the nice thing about this is that like, as you're setting off bombs and blowing things up, you're going to feel a sense of, Oh, I almost cleared that puzzle. Right. Because if there's a fixed number of targets in a level that you need to blow up and you've destroyed like six out of eight of them or whatever, you're going to have at least some sense of what does or doesn't work or what does or doesn't contribute to a uh, successful clear successfully clearing the level. Yeah. You could have enemies in this as well. It's not just yeah. trying to get through a bit of personality, rival bombs. Yeah, and that, that even having... Yeah, absolutely. Like, having rival bombs, that might even play really well into the, like, sort of set fuse so that you have, like, one little bomb charging forward autonomously to clear the way, destroy an enemy before they respawn. You've already taken conscious control of a new one and you're running to chase after the the one you've set ticking off forwards. You know, game, game design is interesting. When you try to... You ever take a look... We should do this as an episode sometime take a look at some of our favorite games and then reverse Mm -hmm. engineer them and think how did this come to be how would you come up with a game like that like i was thinking about bloodborne and how yeah it's so simple it's just it's a hack and slash but they make it so you are vulnerable so it's all about timing and being vulnerable Mm -hmm. and then around that they build oh and then we'll also make the environments incredibly mysterious and, and fun to look at and have variety so like how do you is is a game is a successful game just having a good hook and then you build from there i would always say that a solid game comes from a solid core engagement i think that's something i've probably said even on this podcast a couple times before is like starting with like what is your core engagement in bloodborne is this it's it is a game that has horrifying elements but it's not a horror game per se because 
your player character is so powerful like ultimately everything in that game is something you're supposed to be able to kill Mm -hmm. so fundamentally i don't consider bloodborne to be a horror game because just because there's a bunch of spooky monsters in it i'd say a horror experience is far more about lack of power whereas bloodborne you have active strength and power um and just like one I haven't played Bloodborne, but I've watched a full play of it. And one thing that I'll just sort of contrast between Bloodborne and Dark Souls, you mentioned this before about uh, in Bloodborne, you have blood vials, which are health restore items. Uh, In Bloodborne, you just have 20. Like, that's it, right? You you start the game, you have 20, go throughout the entire game, you have 20 of these health restore uh, items. There's a modification where you can have more if you choose to have that or strength. But yeah, that's your general base value is 20. Right. Whereas in Dark Souls, you have the famous Estus flasks where you start the game with five and then like you get more throughout your experience. And it feels in Dark Souls like the more Estus flasks you get, they are adding to your character growth. But consider that by making the number of blood vials you get in Bloodborne static, they've actually created a amazingly... Um, a very well slanted difficulty curve by giving you a fixed amount because towards the beginning of the game, 20 blood vials is going to get you a long way because it, each of those blood vials will fill up your health bar. You have a generous amount of them when you start towards the end of the game, 20 blood vials feels like nowhere near enough. So by making that element, a fixed point where it's more than you need in the beginning and less than you need late in the game, Mm -hmm. they've actually set this like really nice difficulty curve with a static element. Like how genius is that? Oh, interesting. I didn't think of it like that. I thought of, I thought of because you could grind them out and have more, you can change. I guess I like the SS Flask, and I haven't played much Dark Souls at all. Mm. But I like the SS Flask because they've they've have it. They have a static idea of when you're from a when you're from one bonfire to the next, you're always going to have this many. Yeah. Whereas Bloodborne does the same thing if you choose to grind them up and go get them. Mm-hmm. So. But I think just Dark Souls removes that element of having to grind for them. But I didn't. I didn't consider the fact that as you go through Dark Souls, your Estus gets higher and higher. But in both games, your health also gets longer and longer. Mm-hmm. But because the vials aren't doing as much, mm-hmm. yeah, it's sort of a sliding scale in that sense. Exactly. But it's a it's a sliding scale of difficulty with a static number of vials. And sorry, if you can get more than twenty blood vials, I just I didn't play bloodborne myself i watched someone else play through it they stuck with 20 the whole game just a few more yeah but it's it's you have to choose do you want to have you basically get like three or four upgrades at some point where you can have more Mm. strength or better visceral attacks or whatever Mm -hmm. and then one of them is do you want to have more blood vials or do you want to have like 15 percent more stamina Mm -hmm. which to me is a no-brainer because if you're having to rely on the vials Mm -hmm. then you're doing something wrong and you're trying to force your way through so yeah Mm. So, anyway, there's uh, absolutely there's there's all kinds of interesting decisions to try to pick out like what were the designers trying to accomplish with this, and that's a large part of what make it or break it is all about is just trying to get into my own head of whenever I wrote these decisions and wrote these design documents in the first place and try to see like did I actually have a good idea here or was this is this concept worth making at all? So, bomb bots that gets a make it from you. Yes. Cool. I'd like to play it with a mouse and click click and point or on a All phone. Right. Something like that. 
Yeah, I uh, I feel like it's ultimately down to the execution of it, but I think that it's uh, yeah, this one gets to make it for me as well. There you go. All right. Well, everybody, you can check out uh, game reviews on a nineties kid dot com and news. I'm streaming on the a nineties kid YouTube channel, streaming three different games every day, two or three hours a day. We do full playthroughs, and Attila. You can follow me on Twitter at BluishGreenPro or my personal handle, Attila Gabriel. You can also visit my website, BluishGreenProductions.com, where you can submit uh, user feedback about the show or see some of the other games I've designed, including a couple that you can find on Steam. And uh, yeah, I think that about does it. Thanks for listening. But, oh, and one more thing. According to the Urban Dictionary, Sector 8, a segment of the universe located between Undiscovered Worlds and Tittleman's Crest, considered by some to be the middle finger of the universe. Bye for now. Okay. Bye-bye.